Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but I hope that you've been reading through the Bible and you can see the light at the end of the tunnel for the Old Testament this week. As you read Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. If you're just now joining us, we've been going through the Bible since last September. Uh, and the hardest part for me is picking one passage out of some of these areas to preach. But today I'm going to focus on Malachi chapter 1. But if you will listen for a moment, I want to tell you a little bit about Haggai and Zechariah. Now, there are 12 minor prophets. I told you before, they're not called minor because they are less significant. They're called minor because they didn't write very much. And if you read through Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know why they're called major. And these are called minor. Most of the minor prophets, all of them, I say most of them, uh, prophesied before the Babylonian captivity. Now, if you don't realize it, Genesis to Nehemiah is the historical period of the Old Testament, and all of the stuff after Nehemiah fits inside Genesis to Nehemiah. Well, these prophets, these minor prophets, most of them prophesied before the captivity. They kept telling people, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Nobody would believe them, and then they went into the captivity. But Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi prophesied after the return from the captivity. Now, Ezekiel and Daniel prophesied during the captivity in Babylon. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, after. The Jews have returned to Jerusalem. They are beginning to rebuild things. Zerubbabel went back and, and led people to begin, begin rebuilding the temple. Well, Haggai, according to the Jewish tradition, was a Levite. He returned to Jerusalem with Zerubbabel from the Babylonian captivity. And it's very possible that he was a very old man, that he may have seen the temple before the captivity, before Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians leveled the place, he may have seen that temple, and now he's come back, and his primary message is let's rebuild the temple. They laid a foundation, and for years it went without being rebuilt. Now Haggai only prophesied four months, but his main, his main uh, uh, message was we need to, you've been neglecting the temple, let's rebuild the temple. Incidentally, Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Do y'all remember the shortest book? Starts with an O, ends with a dia. <laughs> it's the shortest book. Only 38 verses in Haggai. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Zechariah, on the other hand, is a, his name means Jehovah remembers. He was of the priestly tribe. Zechariah was probably born in Babylon and then went back. So it's, it's interesting, Zechariah has the longest writings of the minor prophets. He also uh, not only focuses on rebuilding the temple, but his message goes far into the future from him. He uh, 
In, he, his visions resemble those in the books of Daniel and Revelation. It's interesting, Daniel was born in the land of Judah, but wrote his visions while in captivity. Zerubbabel was born in captivity. I mean, excuse me, Zechariah was born in captivity and wrote his visions back in Judah. And then Daniel, I mean, uh, not Daniel, but John. John was born in the, the promised land, but he wrote his visions in the, on the Isle of Patmos. Zechariah has more messianic prophecies than any of the other minor prophets. He's not only saw the, the coming of the Messiah, but also God in his glory at the very end. And so you'll see a lot of apocalyptic writings in Zechariah. Now, I want to focus on Malachi. And a lot of people think immediately, when you think of Malachi, that it only talks about tithing. Well, let me tell you, that's just a very, very small part of it. Malachi is very relevant to us today because the same situation that we're in today was going on in Malachi's day. I want to begin reading in verse 6 of chapter 1. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I, if then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts. To you preach, says the Lord of hosts, to you preach to despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offered defiled food on my altar. But you say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. While this is being done by your hands, will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts. Nor will I accept an offering from your hands, for from the rising of the sun even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled, and its fruit, its food, it's contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick, thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? But curse be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow. But sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The pastor of a big city church ran an ad for a caretaker slash housekeeper. The next day, a well-dressed young man appeared at the pastor's door, but before that young man could say any more than, hello, I came to see about, the pastor began to question him. Can you sweep? Can you shovel walks? Can you make beds? Can you run errands? Can you fix meals? Can you balance a checkbook? Can you babysit? And the, and the young man said, whoa, 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 whoa. I only came to see about getting married, but if it's that much work, I'm not interested. <laughs> I've done a lot of weddings in my life, 
And most of you go into a wedding and you see it all nice and proper and everything's beautiful. But I'm going to tell you, the real show is behind the scenes. Because a lot of funny things happen. One of these days, I'm going to write a book. Between that and funerals, I could tell you some funny things. But I also know that when you're back there in the back and you're waiting for your time to come in, most of the time the pastor and the groom and the best man are standing back there and possibly some groomsmen, depending if they're doing the ushering or whatever. And you get real nervous, the groom does sometime. So you have a best man back there to keep you from running off. <laughs> this particular case, the... The groom was unusually nervous and he was agitated. He kept pacing back and forth and wringing his hands. And finally, the pastor was so concerned about him, he said, son, what's the matter? Have you lost the ring? And he said, no, sir, I've just lost my enthusiasm. <laughs> there are a lot of people who come to church who've lost their enthusiasm. A lot of people who go through the motion serving God, they're far from being enthusiastic about it. Well, Malachi was a prophet who prophesied in the last days before the coming of the Lord Jesus the first time. Now, it was still 400 years, but he was the last prophet that prophesied before the Messiah came. We're living in the last days, waiting on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's a striking parallel between the people in Malachi's days and the people that we live around. For example... In Malachi's days, socially, it was a time when adultery was rampant and divorce was very common. Children were being treated with great deal of abuse and it was a time of gross materialism. Morally, it was a time when people seemed to have lost the understanding of what was right and wrong. They were calling wrong right and right wrong. We don't live in that kind of society, do we? People have lost their moral compass. And, and when you think, well, the word of God is still not relevant. Oh, yeah, it's relevant. And you have to be careful that you don't take the promises given to Judah and try to apply them personally all the time. But you can look at this passage and see the message of the prophet to a society just like we're living in. And so we can find some principles and truth here that still fit what we're living in. It was a time of, of great spiritual concern. In fact, Malachi was saying, you folks are going through your life and you have no concern about God. It was also a time when formalism and skepticism began to develop and out of that came the Pharisees and the Sadducees that were so prominent in Jesus' day 400 years later. I just want you to know that you can serve the Lord and one of the tendencies we have is that we become so familiar with everything that we lose our enthusiasm. We become so familiar with the things of God that we begin to take it casually and nonchalantly. And we don't think it's important. I don't want us to be that way. And so in order to give God our best, some things have to happen. What does it mean? Well, let's look at this passage. Giving God our best begins or continues with respect or our attitude. You know, some relationships demand respect and honor, and he lists some of them. 
In verse six, he talks about a son and a father. And, and, you, and you look at it, it's normal for a son to honor or to respect his father. You may not like, you may not have had a good dad, and you may not like them, but you still respect him because he is your father. Well, the Bible teaches us that the God is our heavenly father. When Jesus came and walked on the earth, the title that he used more than any other time was God the Father. And when you come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, the Bible tells us in John 1, 12, as many as received him, Jesus, God gave the right to be called the children of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, Beloved, we are now the sons of God. God is our Father. And as a son respects his Father, we ought to respect God. Another analogy he uses is a servant and a master in verse 6. He said... Where is my honor? And if I am master, where is my respect? Not only is God our father by means of being born again or regeneration, but God is our master because of redemption. He purchased us. He bought us with his own blood, with the sinless blood of Jesus. He bought us back out of our sin and slavery to sin. So he uses that analogy. Your life is not your own anymore. When you give your life to Christ, you're not just praying a prayer. You're committing your life to Jesus Christ to make him Lord and boss and the owner of you. I will do what you want me to do, God. But there's also a third analogy in verse eight. He mentions the governor or the king and you as a citizen and a king. He said, try giving this to your king. Try giving this to your governor. See if he's going to respect you. So you see the three, the three relationships here. And the word honor in verse six means glory. Where is my glory, God says? And where's my respect and reverence for him? You see, they were guilty of the sin of omission. It's not that they were on purpose not respecting God. They just sort of grew lackadaisical. They just, just didn't follow him anymore. They just didn't really think about him. And they also said in verse 7, he said, you offer defiled food, and he said, you say the table of the Lord is contemptible, which means unimportant. You get to where you think, I don't need God. I don't need this anymore. I don't need worship. I don't need all of this. And you sort of become nonchalant in your walk with God. You know, it was feared that a lot of people would not ever come back to church after all of this isolation because they said, well, people are going to get so used to being at home and they're going to find out they don't need the church. They won't be back. I'm so thankful you did not feel that way. Because we get to the place where we don't ever want to think it's unimportant. If you look in verse 6, verse 8, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, verse 13, and verse 14, you're going to find the name of God, the Lord of hosts, God Almighty. He's saying, you don't respect me. I am the Lord of hosts. And you respect your father more than you respect me. You respect your master more than you respect me. You respect your governor or your king more than you respect me. That's pretty... It's a pretty stout accusation, isn't it? But folks, is it true in our society? People don't respect God. I'm not talking about you. You're here. 
But you know, even at that, we can, if we're not careful, we can become so familiar with it that we lose that reverent awe about God. In fact, if we're not careful, worship can, be some, can become so casual that we don't even feel like we've worshiped. It begins with a respect. It begins with an attitude. Lord, I don't ever want to think that about you. And I'm not saying you would on purpose do that, willfully do that, but just by omitting it, it may become that way. Our best also is more than religion. You know, it's, it's not just the sin of omission, it's what they were actually doing. It's one thing to, to not stand when the national anthem is played, it's another thing to burn a flag in public. Sometimes you forget to stand. Of course, nowadays, that's a, well, that's a whole other story. But the principle here is there, there's two things they were doing when they were, when they were worshiping. The first thing is they brought pathetic offerings. Look at verse seven. You offered defiled food on my altar. In what way we defiled you? You say the table of the Lord is not even important. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and the sick? Folks, this is not the way we normally worship. Now, I mean, now you, you give online, you give in envelopes and so forth. But in this days, people brought offerings. They brought animals. They brought what they had in order to exchange. And, and Deuteronomy 15 told them some of the things they were to bring to honor God or to worship God and sometimes make atonement for their sin, especially once a year on the Day of Atonement, they would bring offerings. And it tells us in, and told them in Deuteronomy 15, 21, it says, as if the lame or blind or have any ill blemish, if the lame or blind or have any ill blemish, you shall not sacrifice it unto the Lord thy God. In other words, he was saying, don't bring me any sick stuff, any sick animals. Don't defile my altar. Now, why would that be important? I didn't write this down for you, but let me tell you why. First, it would be if you were going to bring something that wasn't worth anything, it was going to die anyway, it would be an insult to God. Now, let me ask you men something, and I hope to goodness that none of you can say yes to this question that I'm about to ask you. Your wife on Valentine's Day or your anniversary, you would not give her a mop. <laughs> if you did, she needs to hit you with it. Why would you not give her a mop? Because she's the most important person in your life. You're going to give her something nice because it's a direct reference to how you feel about that person. And, and if somebody's important in your life, you're not going to give them some old, worn out, tattered, torn object. You're going to give them the best. You don't want to insult them. It would hurt their feelings. Well, God was saying, don't bring me anything that's defiled. Give me your best. After all, I am God, the Lord of hosts. 
Malachi's prophesying. He's saying, he's telling these people, you're, you're giving stuff to God and you're, you're offering stuff to God you're going to lose anyway. And second, the, the theological animal, the theology of the animal sacrifice was for atonement, signifying that the most perfect animal you could have would be the offering that you gave to cover your sins for the world, for the, for the year. Now, we know that that's a precursor or a foretaste of Jesus coming who was sinless and perfect and gave his life for us. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. And so when you brought this offering, it showed that you saw the seriousness of your sin and the seriousness of the holiness of God. And if you're going to give something that is, is broken anyway, you're basically saying, I, I don't really take serious my sin. And I don't take serious the holiness of God. Does that make sense? So that, why, why, that's why God said, don't bring me anything that's defiled. But here's what the people would do. They would, they would start the house of the Lord on the day of atonement or whenever that, whenever that feast was. They would, they would start and they'd say, well, you know, we got this blind goat over here. He's no good to us anymore. We ought to just give that. Well, we've got this lame lamb over here. It's, it's no good to us. Let's just, let's just take We've got a sick calf over here. Let's just take it and, and offer it. And here they came on the Lord's day bringing their sacrifices to the Lord and they've got a, a blind goat or a lame lamb or a sick cow and giving God the leftovers. God doesn't want your leftovers of any part of your life. This is no reflection what I'm about to say on my wife's cooking. <laughs> Has nothing to do with her. But I'm going to tell you that I've eaten a lot of dog food in my life. <laughs> Seriously. Not kidding. You say, are you crazy? No, I'll tell you. I've been invited to people's homes, and we've eaten wonderful meals. And about the time I'm leaving, they're trying to get me to take something. They say, preacher, if you don't take this, we're just going to give it to the dog. <laughs> I've eaten it. <laughs> now, obviously, I'm being a little silly, but you know what? That's kind of the attitude that people have when it comes to God. Well, I'm going to lose this anyway. I might as well just give it to God. I'm going to lose this anyway. I might as well just donate it here or whatever to the church. Some people say, well, you know, I, 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 ought to, I ought to give God a little bit of my time every day. If I don't have anything else to do, I'll go worship. If I don't have anything else to do, I'll serve him. Or if I, don't, if I can't find anything else to do with my talents, I'll give those to God. If I happen to have everything I want to buy, if I have anything left, I will give it to God. And God says, you've defiled my altar. In these verses, we learn several things that are about our sacrifices. We learn that the Lord expects us to give correctly. And when people brought their offerings to the Lord, it had to be according to what he wanted them to do to teach them, to show them how serious their sin was. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you buy atonement for your sin today because we're on this side of the cross and the greatest atonement was given. Jesus Christ. 
The once and for all atonement was made. We don't make any more sacrifices for our sin. But just because Jesus paid it all doesn't mean that we don't honor him with our time and our talents and our possessions and our life and say, God, I want you to have the best that I have to offer regardless of what area it is in my life. Pathetic offerings. But they also were guilty of passionless service. Look at verse 13. And you also say, oh, what a weariness it is. Do you believe God wants you to be sincere? So when you sing, are you sincere? Did you really mean Jesus, only Jesus? All authority is yours. When you teach a Sunday school class, I believe you teach from the sincerity of your heart. When you bring your offerings to the Lord, you ought to bring it with the sincerity of your heart. You give, you serve, you honor correctly, but verse 13 says it becomes a weariness. People come to the point that their service and their worship and their giving just becomes routine. You just kind of go through the motions. I remember a man who met me, this was a long time ago. He was even in another building. He, he came up to me after the eight o'clock service and he said, I'm so glad y'all have an eight o'clock service. It's a member. I'm so glad we have an eight o'clock service. I said, really, why? He said, because my wife and I like to come and get it over with. <laughs> exact words. Well, I didn't really know how to take it. I think he meant well, but how many of you came today just to get it over with? Back in the day when the Dead Sea was still sick, I was in college. Now, we didn't have cell phones. I know you young people can't imagine life without that. And we didn't even have private phones in our room. We couldn't afford it. Long distance costs money. But there was a hall phone in the boys' dorm at Washita Baptist University. And on that hall, that, that phone would ring. It was down in the middle of the hall and somebody would answer it and, and then they'd holler out if the phone was for you, they'd pick it up and say, David Wilson, the phone's for you! So we'd go out and answer the phone. Well, I don't know that this happened at Washita. It could very well have had, but I read about another girl's dorm who had a phone in the hall and the girls were always wondering what they could say tactfully to turn down a date from when a boy called on the hall phone. And they weren't able to think fast enough to do it, so they made a list and put it on the wall right by the phone. <laughs> I've got to study for a test tonight, I've ordered whatever. You know, they had all these good, tactful excuses or reasons. It worked great until one night a girl got a little flustered when a boy asked her out and said, well, I'd love to go out with you, Tom, but I can't because of number seven. <laughs> well, how many people go through worship like that? They just are so accustomed to it. You know when to stand up, sit down, shut up, leave, clap, give, whatever. We just sort of go through it, don't we? It's passionless. It's and there's a reason for that. I like what Pastor Ray Pritchard, he gives three symptoms of weariness. I tweaked it a little bit. But basically, inadequate preparation. You don't think about before you get here. Saturday night is when you win the battle about coming on Sunday morning. 
And when you come, it's, Lord, I want to come in. I want to have an encounter with you. I want to contribute to the people around me. Help me to be a blessing. I know not everybody comes in the same way every Sunday. I, I, I'll confess to you, there's occasional Sunday I don't want to come. My wife makes me. <laughs> Doesn't happen very often. Mostly I'm just tired. But prepare your heart to come. This next thing is an insincere participation. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know, I'm not a genius. Close, but I'm not a genius. <laughs> doesn't take a genius to notice when somebody would rather be someplace else. Especially when you're singing songs about the greatness of God and the glory of God. Sometimes it's improper motivation. Why did you even come to church today? What was your motivation? Why did you come? Well, there's probably some kids in here who go, my parents made me come. There may be some of you going, well, I just want to make sure God knows who I still am. Instead of wondering if a service helps you or if you determined if you liked it or not, the real issue is, did I meet God today to some degree and did I grasp his greatness? Folks, God's not expecting you and I to be perfect. There's no perfect people in here. And we come in with our flaws and with our, our sin. And we come in, some days we come in better than others. And, and like I said, there are times when I think, I'd rather be someplace else. But then after I get here, I'm thinking, God, I'm so glad I came. I'm so glad I came. But when you come, don't just go through the motions. Soak it in a little bit, but don't just go through the motions. Don't become so familiar with it that you know exactly what's going to happen. Now, we have to do some things with familiarity because of time constraints. When you have three services, you've got to keep moving along. And so there's only so much you can do. And I know some of you are glad that there's a time constraint. <laughs> so am I. Listen to some of the other prophets. Listen to Amos. God, speaking for God. Amos 5, 21. I hate, I despise your feast days. And I do not savor your sacred assemblies. Though you offer me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them, nor will I regard your fat and peace offerings. Take away from me the noise of your songs, for I will not hear the melody of your stringed instruments. But let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Isaiah 1.11, to what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of the lambs or goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required this from your hand to trample my courts? Bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your moon moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates their trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. He was talking about the sin of the people going through the motions but not even worrying about the sin in their life. That's what the prophet was talking about from the, 
speaking for God. You know, it didn't do much good to put your best foot forward if you're dragging the other one behind. And what's sad, verse 7 says, they don't even know they're doing it. How have we defiled your altar? How have we polluted you? Their heart wasn't in it. They didn't even know it. And it's amazing how many people don't even realize their hearts are away from God. They just sort of go through the motions and they don't even think about God until Sunday. Oh yeah, we haven't been in a while, let's go. Their heart's not in it. Kind of reminds me of a question I've always had. Why do kamikaze pilots wear helmets? Was their heart not in it? I may change my mind. <laughs> That's probably all you're going to remember today. God said in verse 11, my name's honored more among the, the other nations than among you, my people. Talking to the Jews. So the last thing I'll share is our best might begin with repentance. Verse 14, it says, God is a great king and my name is to be feared among the nations, not, not be afraid of him, but, but be honored and reverenced. But look what it says in verse 14 at the beginning, but cursed be the deceiver. Now, that word deceiver is the word cheater. It means a trickster, a conniver. And it's likely that he planned from the start to substitute a deformed animal. He even took a vow. Now, vows were voluntary, but he wanted to make himself look more spiritual than everybody else. I'm going to give up. I'm, I'm taking a vow. But then he brings an animal that was not how God wanted it. It's not necessarily the offering itself, it was the attitude behind it. It's like, you're gonna lose this anyway, don't give it to me. God doesn't like leftovers. He wants the best. All of us have something to learn here. So where do we start? We start with 1 John 1, 9, that says if I confess my sin, he's faithful and just to forgive me my sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you bow your heads with me? If you don't know Jesus as your savior, God gave us his best sinless life. And if you don't know Jesus, you can give him your life right now. Lord, I lift up those who need Jesus, who've never been saved, who've never committed their life. Maybe they've prayed a prayer, maybe they've been baptized, but they've never given their life to you. Would you show them that only when they commit their complete life to you can they be saved? I pray for those, Lord, like, like me, been a Christian a long time. Lord, forgive us for not giving our best to you. Forgive us for becoming so familiar that we take for granted what you have done. 
We turn from that sin and ask you to forgive us. Renew a right spirit within us. Draw us closer to you. I lift up those who may need a church, Lord, and ask that if this is the place you want them to come, you send them here. I pray for those that need to be baptized to stand up and testify for Christ just like these three this morning. Unashamedly, I'm a believer. I've committed my life to Jesus. I want the world to know. Lord, only you can change our lives. You know our hearts. You know where our hearts are today. Would you search our hearts, show us our sin, draw us closer to you. If you're watching us online, even if you see this on television, you can text us. You can text the word living hope, all one word, no space, living hope. 474747. Fill out that information. It'll come to us. We'll call you on the telephone. Talk to you. Maybe you want to take that card that's in the seat pocket in front of you and indicate a commitment that you're making today. You can indicate, I want to know more about following Jesus. I want to join. I want to be baptized. I, I don't know what your decision would be, but God will lead you. You can drop it in the box as you leave and we'll call you. It's our first response. It's a telephone call. After we're dismissed, there'll be some pastors here at the front to pray with you, talk with you. Maybe you've got something on your heart. You just need somebody to pray with you. They'd be glad to visit with you here in just a moment. So Lord, we commit ourselves to you, thanking you that you love us, that you've given us your best. Lord, we want to give our best to you. Our time, our talents, our abilities, our material things, it all belongs to you. You created us. You gave us life. I pray for those that need to commit their life to you today. Thank you, Lord, for loving us even when we're unlovable. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for speaking to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to today's message. If you would like more information, to make a commitment, or to request prayer, please text the word podcast to 555-888. You can also connect with us on our Southcrest app or our website for complete worship services or to plan to visit us in person. Thanks again for listening.